0: So I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We're continuing our our discussion and our our teaching on hope. Because in this season of our our lives and and in every season, of course, but right now specifically, I believe that God wants us to be a church that has its hope fixed on Him. I believe, I, would, I want us to be called a loving church. I want us to be called a faith-filled church, but I really also want us to be called a hopeful church. And when I say be called, I really don't care what other people say, but I want you to feel it. I want you to believe it. Hopeful people are people that have their heads up looking for redemption. They're, lo- they're looking for God, right? Jesus said, when, when the whole world looks like it's falling apart, when all these signs come, he says, not, not quite the end just yet. You'll see signs in the heaven and the earth beneath. You'll see natural disasters. You'll see wars and rumors of wars. He said, but that's not the end just yet. When all these things happen, lift up your heads for your redemption draws near. That is a statement that's supposed to put hope in your heart. Now, that kind of hope is not a natural reaction to what's going around you, right? I mean, people don't naturally just feel full of hope when, when the world seems to be falling apart. But Jesus says, lift up your heads for your redemption draws near. When we are full of the hope that the scripture talks about, godly hope, you're always looking for that redemption. You're always looking for that rescue. You're always looking for deliverance. You're always looking for God to to do what he says he's going to do. You're expecting God as your deliverer. You're expecting. King David said, blessed be the Lord our God who daily bears our burdens. Then he goes and he says, to God alone, salvation belongs to God. He says, to God alone belongs deliverances from death. So he's saying, God owns the rights to saving my life from the jaws of death. And if anybody would know it, it was David. He's been through enough circumstances where he almost died. He says, you know what? You know who's really good at saving my life? It's God in fact he he just comes to expect it he comes to expect I don't know where it's coming from God's going to save me he will save me he saved me from the lion he saved me from the bear he saved me from Goliath he saved me from the Philistines he saved me from my own people he'll save me See, that's what, you know, the scripture talks about a hope that's born out of, out of even the testing, even, even those difficult things that there's a hope that comes out of it. And I believe that's the hope we're talking about. When you talk to a believer who's been through some stuff and in every situation has seen God deliver them, that hope is not easily taken away because right. right. they can look back and go, hey, I should have been dead like five times now. How many times should I have been bankrupt? How many times? You know, but God rescued me. God delivered me. God is my, he's, I put my hope in him. You know, really, we talked about this earlier, but just for the sake of context, let me just say it again. The world's idea of hope is a wish, is a desire. The scriptural concept of hope is an earnest expectation. It's not if it might happen. It's not, I hope this happens, but it might not. Hope is sure, it's secure. And the best example I can think of is that the New Testament talks over and over again about the hope of salvation and the hope of his return. Anybody here believe that Jesus is coming back? Yeah? Okay, so if I were to say, I hope Jesus comes back, does it sound like I'm sure about that? No, because we still think of hope like the world thinks about hope. But the scripture says, we hope for his return. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's not in doubt. Right. What, what if I said to you, I, sh- I hope I'm saved. You'd want to pray for me. You'd want to take me aside and say, Pastor, you need to look at the word here. I'm worried about you. You don't know. If you don't know, how am I supposed to know? Yeah. But I do hope I'm saved. And I at the same time say, I know I'm saved. Yeah. 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 So we've got to redefine even, so in a room full of believers, that still sounds weird. Yeah. You know, it still sounds weird. Does it sound normal to anybody when I say, I hope I'm saved? But that's what the scripture says. Our helmet, it says in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the helmet you have on your head is the hope of salvation. It's not in doubt, it's expected. Yeah. Now, the salvation he's talking about in his letters to the Thessalonians is that salvation and his return that he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. So he's saying there's, I know I've been saved, but I know I will also be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. I know when he comes back, I'm going with him. And whatever your end times doctrine is, we all believe Jesus will return. And we all believe that the church is his bride and he's coming back for a bride. That's hope. Hope. So we have to redefine hope. We have to. In fact, I wonder if you could start using hope the Bible way enough times that you'd start believing it that way. Because the problem is, until we believe it that way, every time you read a scripture that talks about hope, you're still thinking about it as a wish or a desire or it might happen. It'd be nice if that happened. Like you hope the Oilers win the Stanley Cup. Like you hope that you get a raise. Like you hope your kid gets a, a decent report card. These are things that you're not quite sure about. Probably the Oilers you're less sure about than anything else. There are things we're not super sure about, but hope is sure, the hope of God is, sh- is sure, it's secure in us, it is, a, it is tied us to the very throne of God, there's no shaking it, right, right? right. so it says Abraham hoped against hope, yes. it says that his hope was based on something greater, and in, in, in fact, in Hebrews 6 that we read a couple weeks ago, when it talks about hope in that context, he, he brings it back to the fact that God swore by himself. So the, that hope was tied to God can't lie. Yes, yeah. We got to believe that. Yep. There's that moment where we talked about Balaam a few a few weeks ago in the book of Revelation in our Wednesday night study. Yeah. And, and there's that moment where Balaam is prophesying. He doesn't even want to prophesy, but he is. And he says, is God a man that he should lie? God is not a man that he should lie. And And, and there's that statement of, Let's let's not forget folks, God is not human. We were created in his image, but he's not one of us. Now he's invited us into his family, he's made us like him, but this is an Old Testament prophet that says, "Guys, you're you're thinking of God like he's a human with whims and 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 changing his mind and that he could lie if he feels like it. God cannot lie." It says in Hebrews straight out, it's impossible for God to lie. Should anything be impossible for God? Nothing that he will do is impossible. And yet he's made it impossible for him to lie. He can't break his own word. He would cease to exist. That's how sure your hope is. Sometimes we just think we're doing God a favor by giving him an, an out that we give him the option to break his word. Because you're sovereign, Lord. He's so sovereign, he never has to break his word. He's so strong, he will never have to break his own word. It's not holy to, let, to say, God, I'm going to give you out. I think you could break your word to me, and I'd still love you. He won't break his word. He won't. So that's where our hope comes from. Hope is the very thing that causes us to endure, It causes us to be steadfast. When you look at, we, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but he says you need to take hold of this hope ahead of you so that you won't be sluggish. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, you know, what a hopeless Christian looks like. It may not look like what you think. It may not look like a person that's pouting and talking like Eeyore all the time. It might look like someone who still smiles at people but really has no expectation of the future and really has become sluggish because they've lost that hope. Hope will pull you forward. Hope will pull you up. Hope will keep you running when everyone else is giving up. So I want to read you something in First Timothy I'll read you a couple things from 1 Timothy. There's, there's, there's something that pops up in the New Testament a lot. And it's this phrase, fixed our hope or set our hope. Can I just say that a lot of people, even a lot of believers, for us, hope is kind of like just somebody with a sailboat in the middle of the ocean who has not adjusting their sails, but they're just there. And every now and then they'll catch a favorable wind. A lot of people with hope... It's, it's just something happens to cause their hope to flare up again for a minute. Somebody says something to give them hope for a minute. Something turns out in a way that gives them hope for a minute. It's almost like their hope is purely accidental. Do you know what I mean? Like, like it's just a it it, it it could come and go. You don't know why you feel hopeful. I feel hopeful because something turned out cool. I, I feel hopeful because that was a good message. I feel hopeful because someone encouraged me. And, and that will only get you so far. Like I said, it's like somebody trying to sail a boat and just leaving their sail and hoping the wind blows them to the right place. But if you look at someone who's a professional sailor, they know how to adjust their sails in such a way to catch the wind and to set a location. I'm going this direction. In the scripture, hope is not accidental. Hope's not supposed to be something that comes and goes, Hope is not supposed to be something that just when when you're having a good day, I feel hopeful. Hope is something that that you need to fix. You need to set. You got control over this. We do the same thing with joy, don't we? I'm rejoicing because things are going well. I'm rejoicing because this happened. I'm rejoicing because the music's loud. But really, joy is meant, hope and joy are both two things that seem to pop up in the scripture when they don't have any reason to have hope or joy. They come from a deep place within us. They are part of our root system that taps us into the stream that keeps us from dying in a time of famine. How blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord for he will be like a tree planted by a stream whose roots extend to the stream that never fails and he will not fear when the heat comes for his heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. Jeremiah 17. Your root system is important because Jesus said that if he sows the word in your heart and you have no roots, he says persecution affliction arise because of the word. Because of the word. That's a scary thought. It's not really scary if you trust in the Lord. It's scary if you're just moving from wave to wave. But it's, it's a jarring thought that persecution and affliction don't arise in spite of the word, they arise because of the word. The moment you grab onto something, the moment you hang on to something that the Lord is trying to speak to you, trying to breathe life into, the moment you grab onto it, there is a counterattack because that's dangerous. It's dangerous for you to believe. Not dangerous for you, dangerous for the devil. Dangerous for the kingdom of darkness. A believer who actually believes is, is more rare than we might think. And it is terrifying to the kingdom of darkness. Satan is not afraid of a bunch of people showing up to church on Sunday morning. But he is afraid of a bunch of people who actually believe what they're hearing. And you know you believe it by what you do after. Right? Jesus says, the people who have no roots, they they say amen. They shout, they're excited. And yet, when a hard time comes, they wither away because they have no root system. So what are our roots? Well, your roots is that you're setting your hope, you're fixing, you're, you're choosing joy when you don't feel like joy. You're, you're staying in the love of God when everyone's trying to pull you out of it. These things keep you tapped in. And really, the key in Jeremiah 17 is trust, right? Trust, blesses a man who trusts in the Lord. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Anybody ever heard the term mission creep? No, it's, it's not. <laughs> not know are thinking. Is that the guy who came on the mission trip with us and just kept bugging me the whole time? No. <laughs> I called him the mission creep. Mission creep is a military term. It's actually a fairly new military term. I think it was coined um, when the U.S. went into Somalia. And uh, it's an idea that uh, a military force will be sent into, sent on a mission, sent to do something, but somewhere along the way they get there, they have their goal. Here's what we're supposed to accomplish. But somehow they get there and the mission begins to creep. In other words, they went there for a reason, but now they're trying to do this and they're trying to do that. And before long, they've really veered off the reason they came in the first place. So 15 years later, they're still there. Mission creep. They had a mission, but they've creeped off of it. I think I've had hope creep, if I can say that, where I had my hope fixed on the Lord. My hope was fixed on the Lord. I was hoping in God. And yet there was a couple other avenues that God used to help me. Channels of deliverance, maybe people that were sent to help me. And without knowing it, I switched my hope from God to that person. That person helped me. God sent that person to help me. God sent that person to speak to me. Oh, that person is the person that's supposed to help me. What have I done? I took my hope off God who used the person and I put it on that person. Maybe you were looking to God to provide for you. God is my provider. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you are my provider. I trust in your word. I hope in you. God gives you a job. It's better than you thought. You go, oh, thank God. And, and without knowing, somewhere down the road, you look up and you realize your hope is not in God anymore. You, you've now transferred your hope to that job. And when you get fired or when you when they get layoffs or when you have to quit for some reason or another, you lose hope because your source of hope dried up is so important. You, have, you, can't, you can't expect that your hope will naturally float to the right place. You have to fix your hope. You have to set your hope. This is why it's foreign to our world. Our world is a very flaky world. We're flighty. We just kind of go with what happens and, we, and, 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 and whatever wind blows, that's the wind that's taking us. Believers are not meant to be blown around by every wind and wave. You get to choose your emotions, which is totally mind-blowing to the world, right? Because the world says if you feel it, it's valid. I tell you, if you feel it, it might be real, but it not, it's not necessarily valid and it's not necessarily truth. I might feel anger towards you. I don't have the right to feel anger towards you. At least I don't have the right to sin based on that anger. I don't have the right to give that anger a place in my heart. I need to choose love. I might feel discouragement at a situation. I can't camp on discouragement. I've got to choose to rejoice in the Lord. You can't drift from emotion. We can't be flaky people. We can't be babies about this you got to set your hope. you got to set your joy. you got to set your trust. What am I trusting in? What am I hoping again? You need to ask yourself these questions because you can't assume that because you had a great experience with God in 2007 and you fixed your hope on Him that your hope is still there. Look up and see. Is it still fixed on God? Or has it creeped off? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, you know, by the time we get to this section of First Timothy, it's um, real practical stuff from Paul to Timothy. It's very practical, but he he doesn't just base it in in purely practical encouragement. He actually brings in some very timeless truths into it, and he says this um, in First Timothy four, verse eight: for bodily God, for bodily discipline is only of a little profit. So he's he's saying. You know, there's, there's people that are uh, putting all their, their eggs in the basket of, you know, if we're bodily disciplined, we eat the right thing, if we do the you know, he says the bodily, bodily discipline is only for a little profit. So it'll do you some good, right? Some people will tell you it does you no good. No, bodily discipline tends to follow spiritual discipline, but it's not where the life is. If you put all your hope in bodily discipline, if I just exercise, if I get up in the morning, if I just, you know, set a schedule, set a timetable, I'll be all right. No, it's not necessarily true. But he says, you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He says, godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. So I want you to look back and see that he says, for this reason we labor and strive because. So does anybody hear the word labor and just think that's a beautiful word? The women, especially today, are like, no, that's not great. On my birthday, I send a text to my mom and say, Happy Labor Day, because I realized it was more about her than it was about me. Yes. I didn't have to try very hard to get out of the womb, it just happened. <laughs> so, labor is not one of those fun words. We're like, labor, praise the Lord, let's write a song about it. <laughs> labor, labor, labor. Mm-hmm. Labor, labor, labor. Nobody wants to sing that, it's not fun. It's more of a blues song if you think about it. What about strive? Do you like the word strive? Hey, uh, not really, no. Maybe sometimes. The Olympics are on. We feel a little bit inspired, right? (laughs) Labor and strive. Sounds work, doesn't it? It sounds like effort. So let me ask you what drives that effort. Do you believe that as believers we should be laboring and striving for something? You think there's a cause worthy of laboring and striving? Right, okay. So what drives that? Because I'll tell you something, if you are driven purely by duty, obligation, a sense of compulsion, um, you'll live directly out of your flesh. You will live out of what you have and that well will run dry. So we need to live out of the spirit, right? We need to live by the grace of God. See, the grace of God is His strength Instead of my strength, I'm living by that. So, Paul said something. He said, He said, But the grace of God towards me was not in vain, for I worked harder than everyone else. But it was not me working, it was the grace of God working with me. So, when I work by the grace of God, I can do things I never could do. I can keep going, I can endure, right? And, and, and so if I'm, living, if I'm striving and laboring because the church told me I need to do stuff, if I'm not doing stuff, I'm a lazy Christian, they need help, so I should help. If that's my, my reason, you might, that might be an okay reason, but you will burn out. I promise you, that burns out. Until you can find another gear, that'll burn out. So you have to find, what is causing me to labor and strive? Paul says, here's what's driving our labor and striving, and that's not strife between believers. That's fighting for something, something worth fighting for. Do we all believe that there's something worth fighting for? Yeah. Yeah. We need something worth fighting for. Yeah. If you've walked into a church full of people that are, are bored in church, I guess I'm a man, so I can specifically say this about men. Men that are bored in church are usually men who have no idea what they're supposed to be doing. So they hate it. Right? You make me come to church, I have to listen to this guy, but I'm not doing anything. When you're not doing anything for the kingdom, we are not doing anything for the Lord. And guys, that doesn't mean that you automatically get a name tag and a job in the church. I just mean do something with what you got. When you don't, you don't want to listen to a guy preach to you. You're bored. But when you're doing something, hey, feed me more of that. I need that. I could use some equipment right now. I'm going into battle. So there's something worth fighting for. We all want a cause. We all want something to fight for. But what's going to cause us to fight? What's going to cause us to labor? He says, because we fixed our hope on the living God. That keeps me fighting. That keeps me working. That keeps me moving forward. I fixed my hope on the living God. Process for a moment why it's important that he said living God. Why is it so important that he says "living God"? Because there's a big difference between believing in a God that is static, a figurehead, an idea, and a God that is moving on behalf of His people. That is that is alive. That is that is flowing with us and flowing through us. When you believe in a living God, that's an exciting thing. David said to his brothers and to to the people around him, "Who is this Philistine?" that he should insult the armies of the living God. Literally in the Hebrew, chai Elohim, the, the living, mighty God. So he's mighty, thank God, but a lot of religions have a mighty God. You know the difference? We believe in a mighty God who's alive. We're not going to tell, just tell you stories of a God that... 7,000 years, years ago, 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, did something amazing. We're telling you that God is moving right now. So we fixed our hope. We have fixed our hope. Fixed our hope. That's on you. It doesn't just say, hi, hope just ray- rose up in me. I just started to hope in God. I don't know where that came from. Something happened. It must have been a song we sang. All of a sudden, I felt hope. You can't just go through life all of a sudden feeling things. You got to say, I am fixing my hope. I'm fixing it. I'm setting it. I'm choosing to hope in this. And, and, and I will not creep off of that. This is my hope. We fixed our hope on the living God. I, I talked to you about this a couple weeks ago. But faith is often the, the, the um, it's the action, it produces the action Based on a command of the Lord, a word of the Lord, a promise of God, faith is now, right? Faith is active. Faith is tied often to what God has said. Hope is tied to who he is. So faith is often like, step out of the boat. All right, I will. That's faith. Hope, faith is, he said step out of the boat, so I'm stepping out of the boat. Hope is, Jesus wouldn't let me drown because he loves me. You understand the difference? And without hope, your faith has nothing to latch on to. We've fixed our hope on the living God. That produces a desire for us to just keep going. Who is the savior of all men. Listen, I love that his hope has some definition to it. It's not just on the living God. His hope is, is based on the living God. is fixed on the living God who is the savior of all men. See, he's got that hope in it. You know, in fact, the scripture says, whoever fixes his hope on him purifies himself. In 1 Timothy, if you just went down a chapter, just real quick, I want to read this to you. He talks about widows. And and he talks about how we're going to take care of widows. Now, he says, he goes on, he says, you know, if they've got kids or grandkids, those kids or grandkids should take care of them. But then he says, but there are some widows who've got nobody. Now realize this isn't a day and age where there's no government assistance for these people. These widows can't just go and get a job. So the church was very active. In fact, the the first seven, uh, you know, the seven that were chosen um, that later, you know, evangelists came out, Stephen, Philip came out of this group. Those seven that were chosen in the beginning of Acts were chosen because the widows needed to be fed. I mean, this was an important mission of the church. But he says, okay, so if they got kids or grandkids, let their kids take care of them. Let the grandkids take care of them because the kids need to honor the Lord in this way. But then he says, if they're widows indeed, look at this. He says in verse nine, let a widow be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old. Now, that's pretty old back in that day, hey? Having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she's devoted herself to every good work. Now, I I started reading too late. Let's go back to verse 5. Now, she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, that means she's got no family to take care of her, has fixed her hope on God. And continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. She who is a widow indeed, who's been left alone, has fixed her hope on God. I want that widow on my team. I want that widow standing beside me and I want to help that widow. Because here's a lady who's going to do some real damage to the kingdom of darkness. There's a, there's a lady who's going to pray for me and drag me through, <laughs> pull me through some things. Now, our culture's changed. I understand that. But, but we still have people like this in our body. And he, look, what, look what happens. She fixed her hope on God. Here's what happens when she fixed her hope on God. She continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So because this widow has fixed her hope on God, number one, she's not worried that she doesn't have a man in her life anymore. And in that culture... You needed a man in your life to take care of you because there wasn't a lot of opportunities for an older woman. But she's fixed her hope on God and that's produced something in her. Because she's fixed her hope on God, you know what she does? She prays night and day. That's pretty powerful. He says, put her on the list. We do everything we can to take care of that lady. (laughs) That is a lady we will take care of. Even a widow that the world says you're hopeless now. Your hope was your man. Your hope was this job. Your hope were your kids. She's got nothing. She's left alone. She's fixed her hope on God. That's huge. It's not the only time that Paul writes this to Timothy. In fact, if I could get you to skip ahead for a second. And... Um, Just look at what he says here about in 1 Timothy 6. So it's a theme that pops up throughout 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.17. Actually, I won't. Yeah, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So tell them don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Why would they fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches? Because they have it. And it's a lot easier to put your hope in something you can see. And because they have it, it's easy to put your hope on something you can handle, touch, and you've got to grasp on. The, the difficulty is putting your hope in something you can't see, which is why the Israelites at the base of the mountain built a stupid idol made of gold because at least they could see it rather than the God who's meeting with Moses on top of the mountain. They want, we want something we can see. So this is why idols are a thing. Because people are looking for something they can control. What we can see, what we can touch, what we can build, we have a level of control over. and, And we know it's there. A God that we can't see, it takes faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here he says, if you're rich in this present world, he says, here's my instruction to you. So listen, almost everybody in the room, by most of the world's standards, would be fairly rich. Whether you think it or not, because you compare yourself to everybody else down the street, I've been in countries where they all would say, you guys are loaded. You got a roof over your head. You're not worried about food day to day. You're doing all right. But he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Here's what he says. Don't be conceited. So don't think you did something to make that happen. Don't, don't think, hey, I'm, well, you're poor because you're, you're an idiot. I'm, I'm rich because I'm smart, you know. Don't get conceited. And he says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So hope should never be placed in something that is temporary. Hope should never be placed in something that, that, that is uncertain. So what's the only thing we've got that's certain? God himself is worthy of our hope. He says, fix, He says, instead, fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Wow. See, the rich guy thinks, I've done a good job at business. I'm good at business. So because I'm good at business, nobody actually says that, right? If you say, I'm good at business, you're probably not good at business. Yeah. <laughs> but you say, I did this. I worked myself up to this level. That's that that pride, and it usually comes before a fall, doesn't it? But when you say, you know who supplies all things richly? God. My hope's in God. Yeah, I have this. Yeah, my business has done well, but my hope's not in this. This could go away, but God will always be my supplier. And He is not not a barely supplier. He richly supplies all things for me to enjoy. So you need to Check, has my hope, you see, because maybe when you were in a place where you didn't have anything, you had no choice but to hope in God. But maybe things started to go well. And your hope creeps off God. And it says, now I'm stable. I got a stable job. I got a stable investment. I've got stable income. What have you done? You've now become conceited and you've moved your hope from God to the things you've built. And the things you've built Unless the Lord builds them, you're, you're wasting your time. They'll fall. They'll let you down. So he says, instruct them to put their, fix their hope on God. Do you see the importance of fixing your hope? Three times in this letter, just the three I read to you, he said, fix our hope. He said, we fixed our hope on the living God. He says, that widow fixed her hope on God. He says, I want you to fix your hope on God. Hey, you got something? Fix your hope on God who richly supplies Because if not, you are asking for disappointment. But when your hope is fixed on God, you know he richly supplies all things. What are you putting your hope in in that instance? You're putting your hope in God as your father. Right? My hope is in God as my father. And my father takes care of his kids. So I'm not worried. As Jesus said, that's the cure to worry. That's the cure to anxiety. Know that your father cares for you and he's able to meet your needs. He knows what your needs are. You seek first the kingdom and all of his righteousness, and he'll make sure all those things are added to you. I want to read you one more thing in 1 Corinthians. Sorry, 2 Corinthians. Then I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I want you to take home as homework, if that's all right. In 2 Corinthians 1, in verse 8, I don't know if you've ever read Paul's list of all the things that went rotten for him uh, as he was preaching the gospel. (laughs) His Hall of Fame list is pretty, I mean, his, his baseball card's got a lot of stuff on the back of it. He says, I was in prison, I was beaten with rods, I was beaten this way. He said, I, I, he said, I spent a night in the deep, in the deep. I don't know how that works out. I have spent a night on top of the deep. He spent a night in the deep, whatever that means. He says, I've been beaten to death, I've, I've gone through all of this. I mean, this man literally died. Was dragged out of the city. The disciples gathered around him. And my assumption is that when disciples gather around somebody, they're praying. He gets up, goes, ugh, that was rough. And walks right back in the city that stoned him. It's a guy who doesn't learn his lesson, right? It's a guy who doesn't take a hint. So he's been through some stuff. He says, we don't want you to be unaware Brethren of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so we despaired even of life. Remember what we said despair is? It's when you lose hope. Notice that he says we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. He doesn't say we were burdened beyond our grace. He doesn't say we were burdened beyond God's ability to help us. We were burdened beyond our strength. And what was the result of me being burdened beyond my strength? I despaired, even of life. See, I, I, when I first started preaching, you, ha- you guys don't want to see what my Saturday night was like. My Saturday night was Terrible. I'm crying out to God, you got to give me a word. God, i got to have something to say. God, i got to say it right. I mean, like, I am panicking about Sunday, but I know God will come through. But I'm like, can you come through faster? You know, I, I mean, I remember just like, ugh. And I would get up on Sunday saying, God, please help me. God, please help me. When my dad first had me, asked me to preach in Loon Lake, I remember, and I've told you this before, but he, there was a few of us young people, and he'd give us like five minutes before he'd preach. We just share a little bit. I would just pray that he would start preaching the offering message and forget about us. <laughs> and if you knew my dad, that was a possibility. That could happen. <laughs> so I was just well, let it happen tonight, Lord. Let him forget about me. I would kind of like not make eye contact with him. I would just. But my hope was in God. God, if you don't come through, I, I know I have nothing. But you start preaching long enough. You get good at talking to people on a stage. And you know what? It's pretty easy at some point to start thinking you have chops. And that, you know, I, got, I can do this. I can. Well, give me a scripture. I'll preach to you. And you put your hope in your ability to preach rather your hope in God who gives you words to say. And you know, those sermons, you might feel okay, but they have no impact on anybody. Really. Except for the people that are just pulling. And they could probably pull a revelation out of a, you know, Billy Joel song. You know, they're just, they're just so hungry for God they could pull anything. But it's no way to preach. It's no way to minister. So the greatest danger to a preacher is that he would get good at preaching and forget it's not about being good at preaching. It's about speaking the word of the Lord. It's about depending on the Holy Spirit as much now as you did when you knew all you had was the, was the word of the Lord. Because that's still all I got. That's the revelation. And it's not a surprising revelation, but that's still all I have. What I have now is the same thing I had then. We got the word of the Lord. We got the spirit of God. That's all we got. Nothing else that I bring to the table is important. And so... Sometimes our own competence is our greatest enemy. Our greatest problem is when we get good at something. And when we start getting good at something, we start putting our faith in that rather than our hope in God. He says we were burned excessively beyond our strength, so we despaired even of life. Do you know, even the Apostle Paul, and you'll see it by the verses we're about to read, even the Apostle Paul could uh, believe that his strength was enough. That he was enough, that he had enough to get him through. We despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You know, you know, Paul had the sentence of death on him so many times. But I would dare say it's probably pretty rare that he had a sentence of death within himself. He had a lot of people pronounce death over him but when you have the sentence of death within yourself, you, you started to believe it. He so said, we had a sentence of death within ourselves so that we should not, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. That's an arrogant statement if you don't believe God, Right? For this man to say, he delivered us and he will deliver us. Someone says, you don't know. Yes, we do. He will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. What an awesome statement. He says we were we were brought to this stage because we'd begun to trust in ourselves, right? I mean that's the implication. I'm reading a bit into it, I'm reading between the lines. But if he says we were brought we we were we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, that implies to me, I'm inferring, that he's saying we were trusting in ourselves. We got pretty good at speaking in front of judges. We got pretty good at at leaving town when things got hot. Whatever he thought, he had put some hope and some trust in his ability to get out of something. Maybe even in his ability to pray through something. You know what I mean? Sometimes we get so good at praying, we forget the power in the prayer. It's not how good we're praying, but the God we're praying to. Right? Oh, if I just confess enough, if I just speak the word enough, praise God, that's power. But it's not your faith that you put your faith in, you put your faith in God. He says, We've start, we, we realize we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. <laughs> so he got to the point where he's like, I don't know how you're going to deliver me. You may deliver me by raising me from the dead. That's cool. It says a similar thing in the Bible about Abraham. It says that at some point, he had to believe that God would raise the dead. You know, when he went up with Isaac, he says something to his servant. He goes, the boy and I are coming back. On his way to kill his own son, he says, the boy and I are coming back. At that point, he doesn't know how God's going to do it, but he knows this is the child of promise. So I'm, I'm assuming he's thinking, I may have to kill him and God raise him from the dead, but he's coming back. Now, he didn't have to kill him. Remember, the angel stopped his hand, gave him a ram. But there was that faith. I don't know how it's happening. But if I believe in a God who can raise the the dead, then everything is covered. However he does it, it falls in his power. Because if he can raise the dead, he can surely bring life back to me. If he can raise the dead, he can surely heal my body while I'm still alive. If he can raise the dead, he can cause those prison doors to open for me. If he can raise the dead, what's impossible for God? So I'm not trusting in me, I'm trusting in him. I have set my hope on him. And when you set your hope on God, these are the kind of statements you make. He delivered me, he he is delivering me, and he will yet deliver me. And I don't know how, but I know we will. I don't have to draw you a blueprint because I don't have the blueprint, but I have this. He does not lie. And Paul said at one point, he says, I know Christ will be glorified in my body whether I live or die. Mm -hmm. To him, deliverance might be he just goes home and sees Jesus, but either way, I'm delivered. (laughs) He's not afraid. Wow. He will yet deliver us. You have to set your hope on something. You have to fix your hope. And you have to ask yourself, is my hope in the same place it was when I first set my hope on Jesus? And I want you to ask, because I I really do believe that sometimes just the idea of I hope in God might just be too vague for you. You You need to think about the character of God. So I'm hoping in God, yes, but what am I hoping? I'm hoping because I know God is is my resurrection in life. I know God is my healer. I know God is my father. I know, and you're you're beginning to hold on to more than just an abstract idea of God. You're holding on to something you know about him. Those things that you know about God, not just the things you've learned, the things you've received, the things you know about God will pull you through anything in life. It's not the message, the sermons you hear that you just thought that was a good sermon. It's it's not the books you read that you thought that was a good book. It's the revelation you believe about God. And you've come to let it be part of you. Those things will pull you through anything in life. So I want to ask you. First of all, just the obvious question. Is your hope on God? Is your hope fixed on God? So let's think of whatever... Whatever the biggest adversary or opportunity in front of you right now. Because adversity and opportunity all require the same thing of you, don't they? They require the same power of God. They require you to step out in faith. So whatever the biggest adversity or opportunity in front of you, what are you hoping in? Whatever the challenge is in front of you, ask yourself, where is my hope coming from? What is my hope fixed on? What's my hope fixed on for how we're going to make it through the month? What's my hope fixed on for how my kids going to come to the Lord? What's my hope fixed on for 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 all of it? I mean whatever it is you say where am I where am I drawing strength from? When I start to get discouraged, what do I think about? Maybe that's a good way to think about it. When I start to get down about this, what do I immediately think about? Where is my hope? There was a season in my life where I was running out, of, uh, running out of money before I ran out of month. You know what I mean? Like, it was just not working. The math wasn't working. And I realized I had a check coming in that we hadn't claimed from the government. So here I had said, Lord, you're my provider. I know you're going to get us through this. And then I realized we had a check coming in, that you know, that we hadn't... There was something we had owed to us from years ago, and we just never done the paperwork so we hadn't got the money from the government and immediately my hope rose and I said, oh, the check's coming. And then I realized it was that easy for me to switch my hope from God to the government. We'll fix it. I got a check. Well, what would have happened if the government said there's something wrong with your paperwork? What would happen if like life does, that check is not enough? That check's only coming once. You can't put your hope on that check coming every time. So at some point, you've got to say, thank God for that check coming from the government, but the check coming from the government is not my salvation. That's not my hope. It was a tax refund thing, just so you know. (laughs) I didn't like sue the government or anything. (laughs) That's not where my hope is. My hope does not rest in that. I want you to ask yourself if your hope has creeped. Has your hope creeped? So how do you know? Like I said, what is it? When you're starting to get discouraged about what God's put in front of you, what what you know you're called to do or whatever, you're starting to get discouraged, what does your head go to? What's the thing you think of to get yourself out of that discouragement? That'll tell you where your hope is. And if your hope is on something shaky, You're setting yourself up for disappointment. But he said, whoever believes in me will not be disappointed. Right? Whoever has his hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. What's your hope for salvation? It's got to be Jesus. It might be easy to creep when you start doing some good things for Jesus. You say, Jesus, you should thank God that I came into your family. Look how great I am. But there'll be a point. Do you put your hope in your competence? Even in missions, ministry right now. So Chris and Tim doing a great job back there ushering. You know, they've been doing it long enough. They probably could lean back on some things they've learned and some things they've experienced. But if they're not listening to the Holy Spirit back there, if they're not trusting in God, they're going to miss They're going to miss some things in the service. They're going to miss some things. They're they're not going to be aware when God's saying, I need you to do this. I need you to to help this person. I need you to, to reach out to this person. They're not going to see it. So our own competence is our greatest enemy sometimes. So have I started to trust in me? Because if you have, let me tell you, let me give you a spoiler of what's ahead. There will be a point where you are burdened beyond your strength. And it'd be better to fix your hope on God before that happens than after. Right? I believe the Lord is, you know, you know what I'm hearing all over Canada right now? God's telling ministers, prepare your church for battle. Get them ready. So I think if we can figure out where we're putting our hope, if we can get steadfast in some things, it doesn't matter what the enemy sends doesn't matter what opportunity comes ahead. We can tackle it because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. It's not about a great program. It's not about a great group of people who have a great group of skills. It's about the God who leads us and who fills us and who's in us. I want you to go through the things in your life. Where is my hope coming from? Has my hope drifted? And this is the last Question. What are the things about God that I know? What are the revelation of God and what is the revelation of his word that's pulling me through to the next season? Because revelation will pull you into things that you're not in yet. John the Baptist, his daddy said, the moment he's born, his father prophesied over him that he would be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And when his parent died, The Bible says as a boy, he grew up in the wilderness. Now, his parents were old when they had him, so they probably died when he was young. It says he went into the wilderness. Why did he go in the wilderness? Because he heard his dad say, You're the voice crying in the wilderness. So he found himself in the word. And it pulled him into his destiny. And he gets out there and he starts crying in the wilderness, this is who I am. And someone said, are you Elijah? He goes, I don't think so. But I know this, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. What you believe about God and what you believe about what God has said about you will pull you through this season to the next season of your life. Because you can't get there on your own. Revelation will pull you into things you're not prepared for. It'll pull you into things you don't know about. It'll propel you into an area where you are gloriously over your head and you'll thank God for it. Because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. He that brought me is faithful to keep me. He that called me is able to equip me. What's pulling you through to the next season? What do you know about God? What do you know about his word that's pulling you? What are you hanging on to? What scriptures are you hanging on to where he says, I'm not lying about this? And you go, I I believe that. And that pulls you. That yanks you from where you are to where you need to be. Hope is so valuable. It's not worth putting in temporary things. It's not worth putting hope in yourself. It's not worth putting hope in money. It's not worth putting hope in government. It's not worth putting hope on anybody here in this room. Nobody here in this room is so special as to deserve your hope. Only God. Hope now in God. Stand up with me. Let's pray.